Carissa Shoemaker. She is a psychic medium uh, based in Los Angeles. And two years ago, she wrote that book called The Freedom Transmissions. Um, she receives messages from dead people, and she charges over $1,100 an hour for a session with her. Uh, she has clients like Jennifer Aniston, Brad Pitt, separately, of course, uh, Uma Thurman, Rob Lowe, lots of other celebrity people. What makes um, Carissa unique is that the dead person's spirit that she says she's channeling is Yeshua, as you just heard. Yeshua of Nazareth, as in Jesus. And uh, that book that she just wrote, Freedom Transmissions, is her compilation of what she says are his words. And what strikes me is that even in a heavily secular society like Los Angeles, where, you know, Hollywood is, Silicon Valley, UCAL, all these places, people are still looking for a connection with Jesus. And if you'd like that, I charge much less for a session. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, My favorite atheist like of all time ever, is a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. And you've, if you've been here, you've heard me talk about Nietzsche. Nietzsche was actually a pastor's kid, uh, wanted to be a pastor himself for a while. And um, then he started to step back and appreciate Christianity. And that's the reason I like Nietzsche, is that he really did appreciate what Christianity really was. And he hated it for what it actually was. And I think he's really, really good on Christianity. Again, he hates it. But he hates it for what I think are pretty valid reasons. He says, the problem with Christianity, the problem with Jesus, is what he called, it's the transvaluation of all values. Like the stuff you think is normal isn't normal. the, The great historical things that people used to value have been hurt by Christianity, Nietzsche says. It flipped upside down the stuff that mattered, like nobleness and strength and courage. Instead, now we spend all of our time caring about the sick and the vulnerable. And your society doesn't get better when you do that. It gets weaker and sicker. And by the way, the people he hated more than anybody were secular humanists. Um, he said they're basically just Christians camouflaged. That, you know, he, he he hated the people who would argue Christian values but would say I'm, they're an atheist too. He would say, like screaming, stop letting Jesus fool you. You don't get stronger by paying attention to the sick and the weak. You get weaker. And you know what Nietzsche said about Jesus? He said, look, all this stuff that people say around him, that's not true. And in fact, if you look at Jesus, what he really was was a baffling madman who only spoke in riddles. That's who Jesus is. And I want you, people who grew up maybe in the South, but definitely during a a time where most people around you, or at least a lot of people around you, thought highly of Jesus, I want you to hear from Nietzsche as we ask this question, who is Jesus, really? Not who your grandma thought Jesus was, I'm sure she was great, not who your wife thinks Jesus is or who your boyfriend thinks Jesus is, who do you think this man is really? Because Nietzsche's really smart. He's got something to say.
Is Jesus just a baffling madman who speaks only in riddles? Is he a dead person whose spirit can speak through a, a psychic for the right price to celebrities? Who is he? So we're beginning a series today that's going to go through Easter on the Gospel of John. There are four stories in the Bible, in the New Testament, about Jesus, about the life of Jesus, what he said, what he did, his death, his resurrection. And John is the fourth and last one written. And if you've been here for a while, you've noticed we've gone through a couple of other Gospels in just a few years. And part of the reason for that, I think if we're a church of Christ then that's got to mean something. That's to mean we have to be a church of, you know, Christ. And I think it's important in this season in world history to make sure we don't get drawn off sides. I try to be a conscientious objector when it comes to culture war, but can I be honest? The last few years, I've found myself repeatedly drifting towards, uh, away from the center, wanting to engage in this or that. And, and, Honestly, people on the outside of America, they can tell you this, but what you call the left and the right to them looks suspiciously Christian, because it is. Both the left and the right have taken values from Christianity, how could they not, and have emphasized it as uh, the you know central platforms apart from Jesus. These days, most Americans want the kingdom of God without the king, without God. And so, for example, people on the left emphasize values that came from Jesus, like care for the poor, the vulnerable, the minority, inclusion of everyone. People on the right emphasize values that came from Jesus, like nuclear family, financial stewardship, personal responsibility, care for the unborn. But, and I'm not talking to everybody here, if you're just checking this out, then this will be interesting for you to hear about maybe this season in American history and also, uh, you know, just to help understand things because I really do believe this is true and I have good reasons for that. But I'm talking to the surrendered people of God. I'm talking to people who have bent their knee to Jesus as Lord because as followers of Jesus, you don't get to pick and choose which things you like about Jesus and which things you'll just leave to the side. Christianity makes a horrible hobby because Jesus did not come to take sides. We want Jesus to take sides. Jesus came to take over. And the good news is the people who have surrendered to him as Lord, he really does bring the best kind of life. Not just existence, but a meaningful, joy-filled, purpose-filled existence. Billions of people throughout history will, can tell us about how surrendering to Jesus has saved them from sickness, from sadness, from selfishness, from so, so much. And in this series, we're going to hear from some of those people, people who are eyewitnesses to the power of God. And so what I want to do today is try to get you to consider over the next few months, read through the gospel of John, not just once. And today I want to help you appreciate what John is doing and how to read it. Okay, so I want to show you first this picture. This is a guy named Papias. I think Papias looks like Pope Yoda. Um, he, lived, uh, he lived from 60 to 130 AD, and Papias was discipled by John. 
as in the gospel of John. Like Jesus said, go and make disciples. And John said, okay, Papias. So John did for Papias what Jesus had done for John. And towards the end of his life, Papias wrote a few documents. Some of those we still have. And in it, he said, you know what? I prefer the living voice to the books. You know what he's talking about when he talks about books? He's talking about what you are holding in your lap, maybe, or on your phone, what you consider the New Testament. And John is, or Papias is saying, I prefer the living voice to the books. What's he talking about? He's, when those New Testament documents were written back in the first century, the way they were written is that people would go and talk to the people who actually lived it. And Papias is saying, I like talking to those people who, who saw this stuff, who experienced this stuff, more than I like the books, which I think is fair and exactly what you would expect in a historical event and a historical person who actually lived. And so what I want you to see is the Gospel of John is trying to introduce us to real live people who really actually met Jesus. In fact, if this sometimes feels too much for you, like this isn't possible, dead people don't come back from the grave. There's a, a great little book, it's not, actually not that little, it's medium, uh, by Richard Bauckham, he's a scholar, he wrote Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and I highly recommend it, especially if you have some skepticism. He's, he does very careful historical work to show us that these people that we're going to meet in the Gospel of John are actual people who actually were telling other people about this event that happened to them. So, like when we meet Nicodemus in chapter 3, the reason we know that story, because Nicodemus came to Jesus at night when no one else was around. Jesus may have told some of that story, but Nicodemus tells people back in the day when he, you know, was living in light of the resurrection, he was telling people about the long journey he began, starting off as a very religious person who was a Pharisee and happened to climb the mountain of religion to get to this other place. Over and over again, we're hearing about these names. Now, let me show you another place in your New Testament. One of the earliest letters written was a church planter named Paul who planted a church in Corinth. He writes a letter back to them. And in it, at the end of it, when he's talking about the resurrection, which is a really hard thing for people to believe in, he says this, I want to commend to you as first, I want to receive what I received, I passed on to you as first importance that Jesus, by the way, that's an important thing in a time of great culture war. First importance. There are some things that are absolute. And if it's not on that list, it's not of first importance. So here's what's first importance according to Paul. First importance, that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus did something about the brokenness of our lives and in us, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to, and that's the word for Peter, uh, and then to some of the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. In other words... Within 20 years of the resurrection, Paul is writing, look, you can go find the living voice. You can go talk to these people who shook his hand, who touched his side, 
who had conversations with a dead guy who wasn't dead anymore. In other words, they took history really, really seriously. That doesn't mean they approached history the way we did. And so, for example, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 2, at the very beginning of John, Jesus turns over the tables in the temple. From the other three stories of Jesus, Jesus does that at the end of his ministry because they're going to kill him for doing that. But right out of the gate, John wants you to know that Jesus is not like just religion. He's, just, he's not just more religion. In fact, one of the great barriers in the gospel sometimes is our religion. And every one of the eyewitnesses Jesus or John names are people who have made a journey to Jesus, who are bearing witness to Jesus, like Nicodemus. Or, or uh, like John the Baptist, who comes on the scene, and within a few verses, ten different times, he's referred to or talks about being a witness. Or the next, uh, the next moment, God the Father is a witness. And then you start to realize, John has arranged this whole thing as a courtroom scene, and you're a part of the jury, or you're the judge, not because you're important. Because God has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ and He's revealing Himself to you. Over and over again, you have these witnesses. Nicodemus, the man born blind. Mary and Lazarus, who are here to tell you about what it's like to be dead for four days and then not being dead anymore, but really needing a shower. And by the way, they had an awareness just like we do. They know, in, the, in 2,000 years ago, they knew dead people stayed dead. They were not naturally inclined to believe these kinds of story. But those people, the living voice, the people who, saw, who uh, experienced this, this is something you got to pay attention to. That living voice died. And they died some horrible deaths. Fed to wild animals, boiled in oil, crucified, sometimes upside down. And the whole time they died... They didn't change their story about what they saw happen. It's not that they died for stuff they believed. Lots of people die for stuff they believe. People fly planes into buildings for stuff they believe. They died for what they saw, smelt, touched, and heard. And they never stopped changing their story. And they did that because they no longer believed death was that big of a deal. But that's getting ahead of the story. So I want to start the Gospel of John series right where you'd expect, in the very end, the very last verse. Here's what John says. Jesus did many other things as well, and if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have rooms for the, room for the books that were written. In other words, this is the only document in the New Testament that tells you why he's writing. And he's writing because he's like, um, he wants you to believe. He, he's telling you at the end of it, I want you to know what I just did to you. I want you to believe and have the best kind of life. And then he says, if, if I wrote it all, there's, the whole world couldn't contain the books. In other words, what I'm telling you about is a categorical error. The Creator, the one in Him we live and move and have our being, has entered into creation. It's a categorical error. And John has been thinking about this for like five decades. 
He's the last gospel to be written. He's an older man. He's been thinking about this for decades. And so he knows he's going to pick and choose certain things that happened. And, and by the way, this is why pay attention to all four of the stories of Jesus because they're different. They're the same, but they're different. And each gospel, you're seeing a faithful representation of the story of Jesus, but not all of it. And when you read the other three Gospels, they move really quick. When you get to John, you're like, whoa, something different is going on here. John is engaging us in a different way. So there's 15 passages from the older, Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that J- John returns to over and over again. In other words, John wants us to know he's not just trying to give us the maximum amount of information about Jesus. This is not security camera footage. This is something else. He's got an agenda. He's got a goal. And he's told us what it is. That we might have that best kind of life. The Gospel of John is kind of like if you're an art aficionado. If you like art. (laughs) If you ever stand in front of a Rembrandt. At first you, you see it. But if you sit with it for a little bit, you see a lot more. All right. This is kind of like a portal into another world, like a wardrobe into Narnia. But we need to know, of all four Gospels, John talks the most about Jesus' love. And he's the most sectarian. By far. Uh God came for everyone, but the way of Jesus is not for everyone. The light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and you only get to God the Father through Him. Anyone can come, but you can't just come anyway. John wants you to know, not everyone is a Christian. And at first, this strikes us with our modern sensibilities as really exclusive. And part of it is, and again, this is hard to communicate in a short amount of time, but the full inclusion is a myth in any group. Show me any group that claims to have full inclusion, and I'll show you a group that doesn't stand for anything, that it doesn't mean anything to belong to. So let me just give you an example. If you're on the board of Greenpeace, and all of a sudden you decide that you no longer believe in global warming. Well, what's going to happen? Well, come on, what are they going to do? They're going to kick you. Those exclusive jerks at Greenpeace would kick you out. Why? Because it matters to be on the board at Greenpeace. It, It means something. But before we go and get too cocky about being a part of this exclusive club... I want you to remember what kind of group Jesus is is creating. So look at this. In John chapter 13, starting in verse 1, right in the middle of the heart of the gospel, right before Jesus is about to be crucified, here's what he does. It was right before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, 
And so, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill with all that power. He got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, saying, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, here's the exclusive sectarian. Unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. To which Jesus was like, let's just do the feet, okay, Peter? There's the exclusiveness, right? You see that. But notice what he's inviting them into. The way of foot washing. In other words, this is what God is like. Peter doesn't get it at first. It's taken decades for John looking back on what do I tell them about Jesus? How do I communicate the nature of what is ultimate reality? And he picks this story to put at the heart of his gospel. This is what it means. And if you don't want to be a part of this... You don't have to be, but being a part of this means that. This is who God is. God isn't against the world. Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save it. He came to serve it. This is an exclusive community that uses power to wash feet. To us, this seems like a Bible story. To John, it is ultimate reality. Because no one thought God was like this. You have the benefit and the difficulty of reading behind 2,000 years of Christian history with people just assuming this. But if you could get back to Peter's position where it just doesn't make sense that God would do something like this. Peter doesn't understand it. Jesus says, it's going to take you a while to get this one. And later they do. Jesus said, it prefaces it by saying, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them just how much he loved them. Later on, John is going to write some letters to churches. And in there, he's going to, I think, maybe thinking of this moment. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. These days we have such sentimental, sappy definitions of love. But this kind of love bleeds. This kind of love humbles itself. Later on in that letter, John is going to say, Dear friends, we do not love with words and tongue. We love with actions. After 50 years of thinking about this, John is trying to say, this is what ultimate reality really is like. And now you're ready for the beginning of the gospel of John. Because who washes feet? This person. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God and the Word was with God. In Him all think, can we put that scripture up? I mean, obviously I have it memorized, but it's in the Greek, so if you could... <laughs> Just kidding, it's not. Uh, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And John is trying to get you to put these two truths together. In Him, all things were made. Nothing was made without Him. And He washes feet. What kind of God is this? I think one of the challenges of being a follower of Jesus in Western context is that for 150 years there's been this kind of secular narrative that basically all world religions teach the same. Never mind that that's kind of offensive to all world religions. Um, but just to point this out, I did a little bit of research on this because it, this is so unique. So, for example, if you were to go up to someone on the street, in anywhere from you know Portland to Phoenix to Pocahontas, and you were to ask them, describe God in one word, they would use. Chances are, eighty, ninety percent of them would say, "Well, love." All world religions teach that. So, you know, y'all know that my wife was raised by a Palestinian Muslim. Uh, I have great respect for, you know, I realize the tensions in the world right now. But for our Islam cousins, if you were to ask them to describe God with one word, it wouldn't be love. In fact, God is described in the Quran sometimes as merciful or loving towards people that submit to his will. But he is never described as love. And what you find consoling, Muslims would find offensive. That Allah loves everyone, that Allah loves even his enemies, the people who don't submit to him. That is, uh, that is something that Muslims would find offensive and that people who are followers of Jesus find to be the most true thing in the world. This is who God is. It's a different view of life. It's a different view of what the good life is, what it means to live a good life, what love is. And Jesus says at the end of his ministry with his disciples, a new command I give you. Love each other the way I have loved you. In other words, this is not the default nature of human beings. This is more. And it's also a different view of power. Which brings me back to Friedrich Nietzsche. When Jesus, it says, because he had everything given to him by God, all authority was given to him by God, what does he do with his power? He washes feet. Friedrich Nietzsche hates this so much. Here's what Nietzsche actually said. Everything pitiful, everything suffering from itself, everything tormented by base feelings, the whole ghetto world of the soul is suddenly on top. In other words, can you guys not see this? Kings don't wash feet. God doesn't wash. Gods are supposed to be strong and in charge. Gods aren't supposed to suffer fools. 
And he certainly doesn't serve them and die for them. But John is writing. Remember, this is a work of art. John is connecting. And by the way, this all happened. But he is picking and choosing what he's going to tell you and how he's going to tell it to you. And John is connecting Jesus washing feet to the next time someone has power and washes. A Roman governor of Judea, Pilate, who washes his hands of Jesus. Literally, he washes his hands. Because before Jesus is crucified, because the Jewish people had absolutely no authority, they had to send him to Pilate. Pilate's super confused. He hears that Jesus is claiming to be a king. He asks Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus says, yes, I am. And my kingdom is not from this world. Don't make the classic American mistake of thinking Jesus says, my kingdom is not for this world or of this world. That's not what he says. His kingdom is not from this world. The world that we're living in, the world we look around, we see how the kingdoms of this world are doing. Jesus isn't just more of the same of that. His kingdom is not from this world, but it is certainly for this world. And then Jesus tells Pilate, yes, I am a king. And I came into the world to testify to truth. And Pilate asked the cynical question, what is truth? And here's what Nietzsche said about this scene. In the whole New Testament, there appears but one figure, one sole figure worthy of honor. Pilate. And all the new, he hated the New Testament. Nietzsche liked the Old Testament because there's a lot of, you know, bloodlust and violence and some kings that did some hardcore stuff. But in the Old New Testament, I don't like anybody except Pilate. Because in this moment, you know, he's, he's got the power. What does it matter? One more Jew, one less Jew. The noble scorn of a Roman before who the word truth was shamelessly mishandled. This scene, he said, enriched the New Testament with the only saying that has any value. In other words, Nietzsche says, what is truth, Jesus? Pilate asks. Well, I'll tell you the truth since you brought it up. Truth is that guys like me have power to kill guys like you. Truth is, Jesus, I have power and you have nothing. Truth is, Jesus, I snap my fingers and you're going to die the most horrendous death today because of the power I have. That's truth. And Jesus, like a boss, just says, you have no power unless it was given to you from above. I love this scene so much. I have a coin minted by Pontius Pilate because of this scene around my neck. Because in this scene, nobody kills Jesus. You realize that, right? John tells the story totally different. After a few decades to think about what does this mean that God died like this? What does it mean? He tells the story totally different. Nobody takes Jesus' life in the Gospel of John. He lays it down. When the soldiers come to arrest him, they come to the garden, he's there, and they're like, uh, are you Jesus? And he's like, I am. And you know what they do? Somebody tell me. They all fall down. Jesus is just standing there in the garden of Gethsemane like, guys, I can't arrest myself. This is kind of embarrassing. Get up. Nobody kills Jesus in the gospel of John. This is how it ends. Having done all that he chose to do. Jesus gives up his spirit. 
It is an absolutely different way of thinking about this story. It's one of the reasons I love reading the Gospels together. Because from John's point of view, what he wants disciples to know is that Jesus died the shameful death on the cross because he wanted to die the shameful death on the cross. He's not a victim. He's the victor. Or in his words, he has overcome this world. Now, I don't know where you're at in life. Maybe you're kind of like Nicodemus, trying to climb over that high wall that can be religion to find the gift of God. Or maybe you're like the very first people Jesus called who were nervous about being embarrassed by Jesus. Maybe you're offended by Jesus. He's pretty offensive sometimes. Or maybe you're worried about offending others because of him. Maybe you're like Thomas and you want to believe, but this whole idea of a dead person not being dead anymore just gets hard to believe. I get all that. I've been in every one of those places too. And for the next few months, we're not just going to preach from John. I would like you to read John as well. And I'm also going to introduce you to some of Christianity and Jesus' greatest critics, like Nietzsche. Because I don't think this faith is fragile. I don't think their critiques can stand up to the reality that is the person and presence of Jesus of Nazareth. Because all the books in the world can't contain him. And all the books in the world can't knock him down. Stuff really happened. And it really mattered. So what are you going to do with this man? The next to last verse in the Gospel of John, as he's kind of laying in the plane, is this. He's telling us who, who's writing it. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. Let's read the rest of this together. We know that his testimony is true. Who is we? It's like at the end of the gospel, there's been, not been any we in this so far. And at the end of the gospel, it's like, and we all agree. Like, wait, hold, excuse me. Who's we? The church. This is written for God's people. You know what this reminds me of? This is Norman Rockwell painting, classic kind of Americana from 1950s Thanksgiving. And as you look at this painting, you know, it's kind of, first off, how strong is this woman? (laughs) Just deadlifting that giant turkey from Canaan. Uh, but is there anything that stands out to you about this painting? Because once you see it, you won't be able to unsee it. Come on, share with me. Kids aren't at the kids' table the way the Lord intended or very much the opposite of the way the Lord intended, depending on what side of that kids' table you're at. But yeah, that's right. What else? What do y'all see here? That's it. Brother Rodney, that's it. You see that bottom right corner? You see what's happening here? You look at that painting for a while and you notice all the stuff you notice and all of a sudden you realize the painting is looking back at you. This is called meta or art being aware of itself. And as you begin to end reading your time in the Gospel of John, all of a sudden you realize, I'm not just reading this. 
It's reading me. Asking me. What are you going to do with this man? Back to that psychic Carissa Shoemaker. One thing that has changed since she's been channeling SU, and I'm not trying to pretend that's legitimate or anything. I don't know much about her other than the hefty price tag. Since she's been claiming to have channeled Yeshua, every person she meets and interacts with, she calls them first beloved. Those are who are people known by Jesus because that's who God is. And all the books in the world can't compete with that. 